North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached, and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. So, Dr. Kuntz, how did Hitler come to power? (laughs) Uh, He came to power through persistence because his initial attempts to utilize some of the forces and powers we talked about last time were wildly unsuccessful, which is how he got thrown into jail, which is why he wrote a book. So and my first thought is he had a lot in common with Abraham Lincoln then because persistence was what made Abraham Lincoln great as a politician as well. But maybe the only tie we should make between those two men today. The, <laughs> I mean, both have been accused of racism by the liberal left in the last uh, last year. Yeah, I mean, you that, know? That's, I mean there's that. that's all of us, right? There, there is that's that. All of us. I, mean, there, I mean, he didn't do enough for... <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. I mean, there was there was a anyways, it's gaslight. I'll leave it. Leave it go. Persistent. So he attempted to use various uh, military small group gatherings and or the all the men trying to do stuff and it's not going well. There's a lot of bad going on. He ends yeah. up in jail. OK. Yeah. And then he talks about how it really bothers him. He, he puts down a book and his heart's kind of laid bare. Most mm-hmm. people don't read that book. It's called Mein Kampf, right? I haven't read it. Yeah, people don't read that book, which you would think for a figure of such political importance would not be... No, you, I mean, you're probably a Nazi if you read that book. Right. Like, like that's <laughs> right. just it. I mean, that's it. That's it. Right. That's in the water, man. Right. Right. So people haven't read that book. They don't know what he says. They don't know about his evaluation of German history. And Why would it that, matter? He's a Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that, I think, is the most salient thing to know about Hitler is that you probably were never taught what was in the book that he wrote, even though you were probably taught about him in like most, if not all grades of at least public school. Right. Right. So maybe like this, like, like he started almost making sense or if not almost kind of making sense just about things that could go in bad ways. But again, it wasn't like he was insane at the start and he was talking to an issue that was very real. And I guess my immediate lesson right here is people, this is why right now getting all riled up and then listen to the first guy that you think makes sense and says, go this direction can be a really bad thing because he well, fixed a lot of problems in Germany, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't even think for me, the significance is not, you know, how much Hitler was right about the book is the book rambles. That's why it's as large as it is. Some of it is autobiographical. I mean, it is my struggle. His, relationship to Jews throughout his life is very interesting because it's a difference between lack of experience because he grows up in a rural area and then personal experience in an urban environment. And also he, because he was involved with leftist organizing prior to the first world war in which Jews are always prominent in leftist politics in Western countries. That's just, that simply is the case. So the, the issue with Hitler is not so much that I'm here to like evaluate everything he said, but that people don't know anything about him. That's right. And that for me is the, is the major significance because it means that whenever he's brought up or invoked, and there are other kind of magical things like this race for whom the, the, the character that you're not allowed to know anything actually about or read his writings is Martin Luther King Jr. He's just a figurehead, right? So, mm-hmm. so Hitler is kind of the antithesis of that. The, the reason that to bring those up is because that really does control your thinking that is off limits. And that's really, I mean, I will talk about the origins of Antifa this week, but the reason that I bring it up in that way is because I think that off limits thinking mm-hmm. is off limits for actual reasons. It's not just off limits because it's abstruse. It's, it, you know, 
it's not like you're not allowed to know anything about, you know, butterflies in South America, you know, it's kind of abstruse. I mean, it could be interesting, but it's a, it doesn't, what does it matter unless you live there? This shouldn't be off limits because if, if they're so important, then shouldn't you know about them? Shouldn't you read Mein Kampf? Shouldn't you, you know, know about Martin Luther King's life? Like, isn't, doesn't that matter if they're so, I mean, if we have entire days named after them or, entire you know regimes such as modern germany devoted so can to I, never can I being like them be the person that that you're asking this question to i yeah. mean and i don't think they would say this as if it were a good argument this is just what they are doing yeah they saw the movie and that was a long time ago <laughs> man and like yeah. today yeah. like we need green energy punch nazis so you're, you're still dealing with someone who i i give it i get what you're saying and we i want to yeah say who are you saying this to because yeah we're not going to get a bunch of people to take a new look at hitler yeah it ain't happening mm -hmm. yeah so then where do we who's listening to this and getting something out of it that's the question that is the question i think everybody's getting something out of it because i think that you need to understand that things are off limits so that there are places that you're not allowed to go and one of the places you're not allowed to go is to explain the third Reich hmm. in historical terms. Yeah, okay. It must be discussed in metaphysical and religious terms. Therefore it must be it, its fate and its nature must be explained and justified in sheerly religious terms. Religious terms yeah. So that when it is brought up or when the word Hitler is used, it's almost as if I took God's name in vain. It is a sacred word. This is an evil sacred word, yeah, right, right, right. but it's a sacred word. And so it may be invoked by certain people who will then function as intermediaries for our society. So I just can't bring it up and I can't explain it in the historical way that, I mean, maybe in the last episode, people felt this way about the civil so, war. So only the priests can wield it. How Correct. interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the, and the, and the priestly class in the case of the civil war, sort of everybody, unless you have a really Discern, immediately discernible Southern accent gets to be a priest on the question of the civil war. Even if your ancestors wouldn't get here for another hundred years, you still right, get to be right. a priest on the, on the meaning and the purpose of the civil war. But on the second world war, you know, it, it's, I, I'm a little shaky. Um, if I were Jewish, I would be less shaky. And, and so the, the purpose there is that it means that, discourse and it's not just about history in the same sense that this podcast isn't just about history the interpretation of the history controls our political discourse right, right. why would anyone think why would anyone think that we won the two world wars not because we weren't economically devastated but because we were good why would anyone think that what does that have to do with anything? Is that why the Soviets conquered Poland after the Second World War? Because they were good, you know, and they weren't just like raping well, I, the entire it, female population no. of Eastern Europe, yeah. right? I mean, like yeah. the entire, the, all the narrative around Hitler surrounds the idea that the people who defeated him defeated him because they were metaphysically better than he was. Correct. I'm not even adjudicating that. I'm saying that what is off limits is thinking about Hitler in non-religious terms. Yeah, right, right, right. Exactly. Because it gets in the way of that, though. It's Yes, because the religious terminology means you can't read that book because it's on the index of prohibited books. You know, you're like an Italian trying to read Luther in like 1710. You're not allowed to. You're not allowed to. And you're not allowed to because way too much is at stake because Luther got to read the Bible and it changed his mind. So you're not allowed to touch that, right? And to me, that is vastly more significant than, you know, Hitler telling us about how his dad wanted him to be a bureaucrat. I mean, the first several chapters of that book are immensely boring. So the spicy like, yeah, stuff yeah, yeah, doesn't yeah, yeah. even come up until like the middle. Yeah. I mean, again, all I know about the Nazi regime, I learned from Indiana Jones movies. And I'm pretty confident from that. <laughs> it was clear that one of the big problems with them caused a lot of problems. We don't like this about them. They burn books. They don't let you read books. They had, they had off-limit book lists, censorship, and all that was very yeah. much part of their agenda. Yeah. It's just, it's all, it's all good for the goose, good for the gander. It's all part mm -hmm. of... You, uh, kings rule by what they say. 
always. Yeah. And so they're still doing it. How they right. interpret what happened is you either believe it or you don't. And we're caught up in a time where there's a big war for which story is going to win next. Right. Huh? And but, so it, yeah, this, to this has to do with both Germany between the world wars, which we'll talk about more. But it also has to do with the idea that if we don't do X, Y, or Z, another Hitler will arise. Right. Yeah. And that understanding of Hitler as a sort of Antichrist. basically like Satan incarnate. Antichrist. Yeah. Yeah. Antichrist means that you can also be controlled not only by what you don't know, but about what, how, how the, these invocations work. Because the invocation means that, oh, that idea is going to, or that policy or that whatever is going to bring another Hitler to power. And that, that would be like inviting Satan into your heart in a church service. It's not going to happen. No one is going to say that. Nobody. So the word functions when it, because it functions metaphysically or magically or religiously, what difference is there on some level? That means that you now have to think about everything, which is why you're taught history this way. Everything, everything is thought of in terms of the Second World War. Everything. That's how you get the absurdities that we talked about last time with, look at these Antifa who are, who are statistically likely to be Southerners or even just people from anywhere that support segregation, racial segregation in the United States. Look at these Antifa, you know, charging on to Omaha Beach, hmm. right? The reason that they can even do that and you don't immediately think that's absurd, right, is because you have to evaluate every to everything in terms of what Satan incarnate did as you were shown in a movie mm -hmm. and how you can avoid Satan incarnates reincarnation. Yeah, that's about right. So I think that's why, you know, it's like, okay, how long until a Hitler arises or when is the backlash going to occur and stuff? And the reason that I'm talking about this is partly because for most of the listeners, knowledge of what's in Germany between the wars is, is not, you know, is not there probably, but also because if you know something about some of these things, I think also on the right, there is some kind of thinking that, well, there's going to be a backlash. There's going to be a backlash there, you know, and that kind of thinking also reads things like Hitler or Mussolini or Franco or lots of rightist regimes of different kinds as natural, as metaphysically necessary. And the thing about human history is that none of it at the time feels or is metaphysically necessary. The only thing that's metaphysically necessary is what the mind of God determines. And since I don't know that on current American politics, behaving as if I do is wildly irresponsible. Most people don't know what Hastings is, right? Like they just, they just haven't heard of Hastings, but like for right. a long time, Hastings like that matters so much to a lot of mm -hmm. people, but mm -hmm. it, it doesn't mean anything now. Right. So to think that Hitler is an antichrist of biblical proportion is significantly overplaying what might be otherwise called just the great man of history theory. So so yeah, Hitler is right. a great man at a time that a lot of things congeal and move around him. And I right. do think that comes and goes and we have that. Mm -hmm. But the idea that we're like waiting for like so many of them to be the actual world altering pre anti antichrist thing this is this is just fiction it's just fiction right right and i think the reason that the reason that and i i want to talk about there there are very legitimate comparisons between germany in the 1920s and 30s in america today and i'm i want to talk about those but i mean i think i think part of the reason that hitler is significant is that you take ethnic strife between ethnic germans and ethnic jews and definition of ethnic german for the Third Reich is actually pretty loose. And there are probably plenty of Americans that consider themselves to be Jewish that are <laughs> not all that Jewish in terms of, uh, you know, the Third Reich's uh, racial purity laws. But the significance here is that you take that ethnic strife, you map it on to a dynamic that matters a lot more in American life, which is race. And then you designate everything, every, every right word movement in politics or anything as morally equivalent to Hitler. Okay. And thus you win rhetorically. Mm -hmm. And so you win right. politically. Right. Right. And the problem there is that Hitler not only is understood metaphysically, but also his particular and his, especially his parties, because it's not really entirely clear in the 1920s 
that Hitler is thinking about Jews or any other group entirely biologically. I think he's thinking about them in terms of ideology. And that has to do with something that really is undeniable, which is that in Western democracies, Jews as a group, not only think of themselves as a group, generally speaking, but also lean leftward in every polity, regardless of income level. That's true in the United States. And it was true before Jews were wealthy in the United States as a group. And it's true. What's, now. what's left mean in that sentence? Left. So that's going to be politically relative, right? So left in France in the 1880s is different than left in the United States in 2021, but they're going to be on the left. So the, is the that only accept- progress again, though, I mean, what, what is not that necessarily. Really? And, and it's, it doesn't have to do with say transgenderism, right? No, not at all. Right. Yeah. But it's going to be in favor Maybe it's going to be read in terms of freedom that's going to benefit Jews as a group. Maybe it's going to be read in terms of a kind of a civic nationalism rather than an ethnic nationalism. Obviously, that's going to benefit Jews as a self-conscious ethnic group. And those aren't things people think of as leftist policies at this point either. I don't think. Yeah, but right. And so that definition, that, that left-right spectrum is totally politically relative and historically relative. Yeah, right. Okay. But yeah. then but then there was an outsider insider effect going on. Definite outsider insider effect and the only exception the biggest exception to this and people are not going to believe me when I say this. The biggest exception to this is Germany. Because Germany is really is the European nation again uh, beyond Germany America. Just means we don't know what your DNA is. I mean literally Ger- Germany Germany is the European nation where Jews are most not only politically, but also even socially and maritally integrated with non-Jews. Yeah, they're, they're an open pot kind of culture place. They had to be. They were, they were a, a melting pot's the wrong thing because it's before that idea. So it totally makes sense that this group that effectively just isn't Polish and isn't Romanian and mm-hmm. isn't these other things. And so they're mm-hmm. Germane or they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're up in the woods that, yeah. that they would have more of tolerance because they just are used to having a lot of different things around in their actual experience at this time. That makes a lot of sense. Now, yeah. Hitler changes the perspective on this somehow. Right. I mean, that's kind of where the narrative yeah. goes. Yeah. I mean, the the difference, the difference between the National Socialist Party eventually. Not in. 1923, the first time they try, but eventually the difference between them and lots of other right word or right leaning or rightist groups of different kinds in Germany is going to be a certain conception of nationhood that is rather purely biological. Hmm. I, I, I want to provide, however, the evidence of a very large number, including one of the highest people up in the German Air Force in the Second World War, that being half Jewish <laughs> still was, as it were, okay. But that is the difference between the National Socialist Party and all the other parties that eventually end up supporting them when it becomes apparent that Hitler is simply a better political leader than they have provided from elsewhere on the right, including lots of monarchists of various kinds and other forms of rightists. So the in, instead of reading him metaphysically, what I will say is that he was himself simply an extremely skilled political operator, which I will credit with Lincoln as well, with whom I disagree on, you know, the interpretation of the American Constitution. Do not but talk. Yeah. <laughs> but I but I think that they're both extremely skilled political operators. Yeah. And yeah. and and what what changes what becomes much more definite over the course of the 1920s inside the National Socialist Party, which has less to do, I think, personally with Hitler. I'm not divorcing him from this opinion. I just I just don't think this is where his brain is at most of the time. I think it has more to do with Heinrich Himmler, is a definition of race and thus of nation as biologically constituted that differs both from earlier National Socialism and also differs, for example, from fascism in Italy, where, you know, Jews are not celebrated and there's no equivalent of like the American term Judeo-Christian, right? Which really pops up for us after the second world war, but Jews are not seen as problematic as a group in fascist Italy, even though they are literally fascist. (laughs) So I think that the issue here is that if you know history, you wind up finding out a lot of things are a lot more important than anyone ever told you, such as Hitler's capacity to compromise both within his own party and within the spectrum of German politics. 
And certain things are much more sort of fringe than anyone realized. And if you read Mein Kampf, one of the things that you're going to be surprised by is that Hitler has opinions about Jews, especially as a, as a political collective. But the people that Hitler really, really dislikes on sort of a visceral level from earliest life are Slavs. <laughs> and no one remembers that because right. you're not supposed to take away the idea that Hitler has experiences in political contexts like Austria-Hungary that would cause him to see, you know, he's like, oh, well, nobody is even speaking German on the streets of Vienna anymore because the empire doesn't even like Germans, even though we're the base population of Aust the Austro-Hungarian empire, all this kind of thing. So that you're not, you can't think about, okay, well, how did he come to think the things that he thought and, and why well, did that, other this people goes back to listen the fear to him? that if you think the thoughts he thought, you'll end up where he ended up and become like, or actually him. Yeah. I think, I think the important thing is that when you have an antichrist, what you have are a set of people who are simply enslaved to utter irrationality and thus they can also be, you know, walking demons and flesh demons. And because of that, they can then be invoked religiously in political discourse. If we didn't have that, if we couldn't invoke Hitler, how would we denounce certain things? How, you know, how would we get done ideologically yeah, he, he what we do get the done? Devil. He replaced the devil. I mean, in, right. our, in our parlance, he really did. And that yeah. shows you the religious nature of Americana post-World War II. It's yep. worship Caesar, baby. Yep, exactly. And so I think that I think that his significant, I mean, read Mein Kampf if you want to or not, it doesn't matter to me, but the significance of him in order to control our political discourse is absolutely enormous. And it's all premised on ignorance of what actually did happen in the Weimar Republic. Which we need to still continue talking about, right? We do. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, so the, the parallels that I see are, there are at least three of them in addition to the military collapse that we saw last time. The one really obvious one, even by the admission of our government right now, is inflation. That is that for the average person, the money that you make matters less than ever. And when governments allow inflation to happen, I think the ancients were right to understand this as one of the most evil things that can happen in a polity. That rampant inflation means that the only people that will succeed are the people who are able to have enough information to correctly place bets on the future of the system. And since that's like why you a listen percentage to the show? of the population. Why you listen to the show? That's why they listen to this show? I just yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, this is just <laughs> this is just an investing advice podcast. Well, it's more about, um, it's, a, it's a wider spectrum than just finances, but really it is about next week for all of us. So it's true. It's true. So, but yeah, but that's going to be a small, you know, elite, our listeners, plus people that work in and on Wall Street. So... When that happens, the vast majority of people who get up and, you know, go to work every day and go home, they just are less able to support their families. So it's yeah. a great evil because it, it uh, allowing rampant inflation to occur means that in the same in just the same way that we we think about our government having opium flow out of a country that we control militarily or used to to be repackaged and, and to kill our own people inflation means that your government can't or won't or doesn't care about you. And what happens in the Weimar Republic, and we have images of in our heads from something, from somewhere. I can think of the, the book where I saw this photo of people carting around Reichsmarks in wheelbarrows. That, that image should not just be taken as, you know, oh, there was inflation and it was really bad. It's not a meme. No, it's not a meme. Like, why did that happen to people? How did that happen? Because it didn't happen immediately in 1919. When you actually have political chaos in many places, and as we talked about last time, a communist revolution. So, so, so uh, I, uh, sorry, keep going, keep going. Okay, just so much and, well, but the, what that inflation drives in sort of our mythology about Germany, people get desperate, and then that, that makes them want to vote for Hitler. So the, the jump you're asked to make, let me just spell it out so you can see how stupid it is. I don't have a lot of money. There are, are some Jews who are bankers. Maybe a lot of Jews are bankers. Hitler doesn't like Jews. I'll vote for Hitler. Okay. One, you have to jump actually a decade because the inflation seems to be worst between 1920 in about 1923. And Hitler doesn't come to power. In fact, he fails to come to power in 1923. 
He comes to power in 1933. So over a decade, some guy in Würzburg or, you know, Rostock is sitting there thinking, I remember that wheelbarrow. And, you know, I've never forgotten how much I dislike these abstract bankers. I've never even personally myself seen. Okay. What you're not told are the rather horrendous economic terms imposed on Germany after the First World War. Right. Not by Hitler or by Jewish bankers, but by us. Yeah. <laughs> so that wheelbarrow just comes out of nowhere. It has no relationship to the desire to punish the Germans less from America than from Britain and especially from on the part of France. Right. The French are utterly punitive with the Germans, especially within their zone of occupation, which is Germany's industrial heartland. Hmm. And so you, you're asked to see those, those really concrete economic problems and, and nutrition problems. You're supposed to see that as, you know, the, the linchpin for getting people to be so anti-Semitic that they want to vote in a guy who is virulently anti-Semitic. And I think that for most human beings, okay, even in really diverse societies, a lot of your questions surround the welfare of your children, mm -hmm. surround your stability on an everyday basis, such that lots of things may be said rhetorically, especially about groups that aren't you. And you may actually vote to some degree on the basis of those things. I mean, I, I do sincerely believe that there are Zulus voting both against whites in South Africa and against the Kosa, right? I, I believe that. But I also believe that in addition to a certain degree of tribalism in human life, there are really immediate concerns that when met will be embraced as solutions. And if someone says not just that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm against the Jews as a group, or I'm against the communists as a group. I've never met a Jew or a communist. But also, concretely, I am against the foreign powers that are against us as a nation, economically and militarily. That will, of course, be embraced. And so I think the, the Reichsmarks and wheelbarrows do matter, and not just as a meme, but I think they matter for very immediate reasons. Well, that's that, uh, okay. So yeah. that's where I wanted to interrupt before. Yeah. Um, and that was the question I really wanted to find a way to ask at the start of last episode when I said, okay. how long? And the thought in my head is wheelbarrows for coffee. A wheelbarrow marks for coffee. Yeah. I know that happened. And uh, I just, I just, I, it feels like it's coming. I, yeah. I want to be wrong. I really do. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. I think, I think that, I think that, Economic hardship and economics is, is such a bland word. Let's let's say maybe like even not just luxuries, but nutritional hardship, which we're not even close to. I mean, you can, maybe well, maybe we, we are, are in but it. in a very different. Yeah, way. right. Exactly. Yeah, I know. I said that I was like, I think actually we are. But um, nutritional hardship that will push people into places that they are not willing to go right now. So well, that's where that barbarism is going to come up. Yeah, sure. we are about as far as the pace of inflation and people's capacity. And I think I think that's why the attempt at UBI with advances on child tax credit and stuff like that, that's part and and also the the desperate attempt against even some of their own instincts on the part of the left to keep the rent moratorium going because they understand that desperation gives rise to political change. Mhm. Mm mm -hmm. The other two other factors in Weimar Germany that, that do track a lot with us, and that is the extent and the, and the rate of social change. So this is this is noted if you go. He's a leftist artist. Some of the drawings and paintings are pretty gross. That's his last name, Gross, G-R-O-S-Z, George Gross. If you go look at the things that he painted, you do get a reflection in some of the some of the uh, changing of sexual mores, especially in the cities, because war and economic hardship will also always drive prostitution of every kind. Hmm. So of every kind, I'm trying to be a little delicate. Some of the things that occur are pretty absolutely disgusting. I think they just generally occur privately and on the internet in modern America, but um, they happen out in the open and you can have it for whatever price 
in places like Berlin and Munich and Hamburg in Germany in the 1920s. So you have a people who have lost a war, who are suffering a great deal on an everyday level, many of them, and who also are witnessing like an utter collapse in what is normal and natural. So just to push on this a little bit, your first attempt at a widespread uh, sexual reassignment surgeries occur in Berlin in the 1920s. So probably, I mean, I don't think these are the only books that are burned when the National, National Socialists come to power, but probably the most famous image of, uh, you know, SA troops burning books is an image of their burning records and books of, you know, um, amputations of penises by this man. I think his name was Koch, K-O-C-H, if I remember correctly, who ran a uh, effectively like a, a, a transsexual, you know, reassignment practice in Berlin. And so forms of social and, and sexual and religious change that really you don't see the like of until after the 1960s anywhere else are occurring in Germany in the 1920s. So they're not happening, for instance, in any kind of widespread brain like the United States or Britain. So it's not it's not just a function. No, of, but like Al Kinsey belongs in the conversation, doesn't he? Yeah. Al, okay. So so Alfred Kinsey, Indiana University, vaccine mandates are there now too. Alfred Kinsey will base some of his assumptions about human sexuality on research done in Germany in the 1920s. Right. Right. So, so Germany in the 1920s is very important for a lot of things, um, not just the things that we've been talking about, but also as the basis. I mean, it's the place where the Frankfurt school, which is the source of so much of the cultural Marxism in the modern West. Those are people who cut their teeth academically and ideologically in Germany in the 1920s. Yeah, right, right. So they were anti-fascist, but they also are, speaking of which, uh, and but they also were in many ways the poison pill that's been America's downfall. I mean, Marcuse yeah. being a, a massive unknown name who's had so much influence. Right. And that has to do with a third parallel, and then we can talk about you know the growth of I've got Antifa. I've got through already, so I want I want you to renumber them though because I got military okay, so collapse, got... inflation, and first rate social change for uh, fast rate of social change. Okay, I've got inflation, social change, and then my third one is okay. related to the Frankfurt School, who yeah. thinks a lot about what they call the culture industry, and that is the growth in forms and saturation of media. In Germany in the 1920s. So Can we compare that to oh, to uh, oh, shoot. Sorry, I, uh, media ecology. Is it like an early media ecology? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, because the significance here is that the National Socialists are only about as savvy as their opponents in understanding the importance of radio and mass media. That is, that if I can if I can print something that gets in front of your eyes every day. But even more than that, if I can have a voice that talks to you, you know, maybe all day, but certainly um, at least once a week, I will be able to effect political change out of all proportion to my numbers. Move you. I can yeah. move yeah. you. So that is something to note about Germany is that Germany is already a society in the 1920s that is highly literate. And therefore, people are taking newspapers, they're listening to radio programs. It's very technologically advanced, despite the setbacks they had, they had had in the First World War. And so it's a place where, like our own time, although our, ours is to a much greater degree, people's minds are dominated by media. This is so important. It's so important that the, the early onset of the media there, new media for them, had a unification effect that yeah. was unexpected. And we're kind of in our own version of something like that, which is, is yeah. worth thinking about. But it, it, to go back to it, too, right now we're in the middle of something, which is figuring out what all this is going on, uh, how these tools work. Uh, what the National Socialists did get pretty good at was figuring out how to use these things to their advantage. Without yeah. question, Hitler was pioneering and groundbreaking in film film and he hires hollywood people actually to to make movies that end up being a big part of how he moves people um uh, the 
uh, the other thing, the radios, I just, I love this fact, so I say it whenever I can, um, that French tanks in World War II were bigger, stronger, more uh, just outweighed and outgunned in every way, the Panzer tanks. But we all know the name Panzer tank because they won with their Blitzkrieg. You know how they did that, though? They put radios in the tanks. Super intelligent move. Just ran circles, literally, around the French tanks. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was new media again. So so if we're going to talk about things in Weimar that impacted the unification and rise of Hitler, it was living in a world of new tools. And then, I mean, it wasn't like he didn't learn to use them, too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. So this has to do with the kinds of people that form the origin of Antifa. The reason that we pronounce it the way we do is because it has a German origin. And... Uh, it is a phrase that is first used when one of these leftist fighting groups sort of breaks apart and they need a more coordinated strategy because the Communist Party of Germany is highly invested in the 1920s, not so much in opposing national socialists whom they sort of agree to disagree with. And they don't they actually read sort of a street truce in the late 20s. But in order to oppose leftists who are not communist and also what are called liberals who are sort of like sort of conservative in American political terms. They form a group called antifascistica action from which we get Antifa, which is part of the adjective anti-fascist. Again, that doesn't mean anti-Nazi in this, in this uh, actual historical example. And Antifa are men who probably had some role in the groups that we talked about last time, um, either in the border wars or in the fights within Germany proper. Those guys are going to be mobilized as street fighting groups. So <laughs> if you think, you know, uh, what's going on in Germany in 1928, you might think, uh, well, Hitler's going to come to power in five years. So I guess everyone is some kind of, you know, raging but hidden anti-Semite. What's going on is that uh, boys are having their genitalia amputated. Uh, everyone is listening to the radio and reading newspapers. Inflation is somewhat under control. There is some degree of prosperity, but the Germans are still being punished for having lost the First World War. And violence among various political groups is ongoing just at a lower level level much like the Argentine Dirty War right? within the cities. Hat tip episode on that. Got to go back and find it. The Collapse of Argentina. Can't give you the name right now, but maybe it'll be in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because a lot of things happen over and over again. And the, the Antifa is not this like organic formation. Like it's, there aren't, you know, leftist kids sitting around in 1926 saying, hey, what if we started, you know, uh, fighting social Democrats in the streets? Antifa was then, and therefore I believe now is, always orchestrated by funding. Now, it may have some political purpose by which it is summoned into existence, but it's orchestrated by funding and it always appeals, it did then and it does now, to people who have no stake in any sort and in any semblance of a normal life, right? So in modern America, you're going to get drug addicts, you're going to get sexual perverts, right? So uh, Kyle Rittenhouse uh, shoots three Antifa in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and he he hits out of those three, two pedophiles. I mean, what are the odds? So you have you have socially fringy people. This is also the case in Germany people who have no other future, they will be attracted to rant to seemingly random, but actually quite orchestrated violence. And the origin of Antifa therefore shows you, I think something that's a lot more important to understand about our place and time than, you know, Hitler, the antichrist may or may not arise once again to rule the earth. And that is that when a polity is collapsing for various reasons, and the population is subject to incredibly rapid social and ideological and on the deepest level, am I a boy or a girl, kinds of change. 
when that's happening, the political situation is totally, totally unstable and up for grabs. For me, this is a happy thing because it means that I, you know, I look at Antifa in Germany in the 1920s and they did some horrible things, but they didn't succeed in taking over the country. Again, my major concern is not that you, you know, hold a specific position on German history and you agree with me and the Lutheran theologian Werner Ehler that a constitutional monarchy would have been best in German politics. That That is unironically my actual position. That is I un- think. Uh, yeah, unironically indeed, because I mean, I'd advocate it in general, but you don't. And so you do now and that's amazing. Continue. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in the context of German politics, I think that was that would have been that would have been good. The Kaiser was the unifying figure. Okay, fine. It doesn't. I don't care if you, you know, if the, you know, if you, if the listener agrees with me on that. The issue is that when you think about our current situation, do not allow yourself to be sucked into these religious terms of looking at political realities. Because when they engage religious terminology, that's sort of the magic by which, for, for example, the evil white male can redeem himself by quote sacrificing himself in military service that's Mm -hmm. that's one way that he gets to be a somewhat priestly figure while he even while he is still alive he can board the plane first in addition to that it gives you like a weirdly apocalyptic and passive sense of the future which is precisely not as a metaphysical figure but as a historical figure precisely what hitler didn't do Hitler didn't get thrown in jail and think, oh, I guess the game's up. Like, I guess, I guess we lose, guys. Sorry, pack it in. Like, someone told me I was mean or bad. So, uh, you know, I mean, I guess they were right, probably. I guess I'll throw in the towel. He, he persists in doing what it is that it takes for him to come to power, okay? So whether you, you know, greet, would have greeted that or not, it, it really doesn't matter. Just don't be as passive as so many other groups were who failed to come to power, who in 1919 or 1928 had way more members and support and money than, than the National Socialist Party. I think did. it was last episode we talked about risk, or was that this episode I talked about risk with you and the game risk and how you're in it. We're in a country where the risk game is falling backwards over itself. You're losing what you thought you gained and the powers on top are changing. And right. we're caught underneath as like plebeians on the ground. And so it's going to be a large part, you know, what happens in the macro is out of our yeah. control. It's just going to happen. Yeah. Right. But this is good news in this way. I think it's very much what you're saying. Like that is happening then on every level of authority throughout the yeah. entire infrastructure, which means no matter how poor you are, how down you are, no matter where and weak you are, if you just watch, there's going to be a vacuum of power somewhere near you and you can be the good man who fills it. And right. the more of us that just decide to do that, the better off our locality is going to be right. exactly. straight up. Yeah, because there are forms of collapse over which you don't have control. You don't probably, um, unless you, unless President Biden is a listener, if he's actually real, you don't have control over the American military or how it gets handled or what the you know training instructions are on the dangers of right-wing terrorism. However, you do have control over your own familial and personal and social and political action. And if you take a lesson from Germany in the 1920s, take the lesson that having control and being charismatic about the things over which you do have control is way more effective in the long run than worrying about the fact of all the things that you're aware of that are real, that you don't control. So if original Antifa is also funded by various forms of capital, foreign and domestic, in Germany in the 1920s, that's probably also true now. Okay, that's just, that's where we're at. We're at, we're at the stage where our country is controlled, not only by money, but even by, by foreign money, by dark money. That's where we're at. Okay. And why are they doing that? Well, they're doing that because political chaos in our country is as beneficial to any number of investors and powers of various kinds and nation state, you know, statuses as chaos in Germany was in the 1920s or chaos in Russia was in 1917 to the Germans, which is why they shipped Lenin. Lenin is just a chaos agent. Okay. He's, 
which is where all of this still makes me. Before Antifa. It's I, the same it, idea. The, the fact that it maybe is Russian hackers the whole way is kind of fun on that level. <laughs> it, you know, it really is. Oh, all I know is that Vladimir Putin has never said that I was responsible for most of the evils in human history. So no, no in fact, what he does is he gets himself elected for like 25 year terms as not king, but kind of. <laughs> and, yeah. and then he watches and waits and he says, I will not mandate vaccines on my people because he knew he would have lost. Actually, I saw yeah, that news. Bit. Right. He would have lost. Yeah. He's like, well, that would be dumb. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the stuff that we have talked about today and in the last episode i'm not talking about so that you know you can um you know go become a national socialist or constitutional monarchist or something i'm talking about it because this was for me personally the the thing that changed my began to change my mind about many 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 other things because i took this class taught by a leftist woman about German history in German. So we're only using German sources and we're only allowed to talk in German. And that really changes your brain. It's boss monster, man. That's so boss monster. Go on. Okay. And so, so I'm, you know, we have to write this paper, this long paper. I think it's it's like, it has to be like 25 pages. That's the, that's like the only assignment for the class. So you have to do that one. Right. And I'm like, what am I going to write about? What do I know nothing about? I don't know a lot about World War One. Of course, you know, I went to public school, so I know plenty about, I, I, I quote, know plenty about World War Two. Right. And yeah, so so I say, oh, World War One. Well, what happens in World War One? Okay, this happens, that happens. They win the Eastern Front, they lose the Western Front. What happens after it? And I realized I had absolutely no idea. <laughs> and when I began to look into it, and, you know, including the stuff that we've talked about the past two weeks, I think... Why didn't, why was I never told anything about this? Hmm. Why, why don't I know who any of these people are? Who are these guys that are running around? Uh, some of the aesthetics of the Fry Corps are sort of amazing. You know, they're running around in like sort of jerry rigged, armored, you know, uh, Fords uh, around the streets. 1920s road warrior kind of stuff yeah 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 Yeah. it really is yeah and so uh they're running around in these really kind of strange outfits another interesting thing and i had never thought of this until you know uh, recent times so i that class is 16 years ago now (laughs) in recent times another thing i realized was you can find lots of ads about why you have to wear a mask from the united states in 1919 (laughs) but the germans didn't really have Spanish. I mean, they, they, they had Spanish flu on like a virological level, but they didn't on a political level because they were busy trying to figure out whether they should become communists. Hmm. So it's kind of an example of most people don't really know anything about Sweden during COVID because to see pictures from Sweden, or, or even if you're an American to see pictures from say Texas or South Dakota, really yeah. messes with your head because yeah. if nobody's wearing the mask, you, you might not know that anything was happening. Right. So what, what this all gave me access to was through the knowledge of history, off limits thoughts about, okay, well, why then did Germany go the way it did in the twenties and then the thirties, but also off limits thoughts about how to think about politics, because I began to think about politics in a way that was very concrete who has guns? Who gets to deploy the guys who shoot the guns? Yeah. Um, if you don't have guys who shoot the guns, do you stay in power? No, the, the Soviets in Bavaria did not stay in power. So I began to think about politics, not in this sort of abstract way of what's the interpretation of this and what's this sort of, you know, hieratic priestly religious way that we talk about the constitution, at least on the right in America. That's that could be fine. And it's great. I I would love an America where our debates were about the constitutionality of, you know, direct income tax. That would be amazing. I mean, let's go. Let's go. I want to go to some polity where my biggest problem is like the level of taxation and how the tax is collected. Fantastic. But when you're undergoing any kind of collapse, that's not good enough. And that's not even the reality. The reality probably concerns like, is there a guy that can shoot me? And does he have a reason to shoot me? So 
this is what this is Germany, certainly in the cities after the First World War. And so the reason that I bring this up to start this series on collapse is because I know that I'm making cognitive demands, not just about arcane things or unusual things, but about, you know, you have to start thinking of Hitler in non-religious terms. I know I'm making demands on the listeners. So I want to be clear that I myself also had plenty of things that were, I was thinking about everything except religion, religiously, religion. Wait, I just, telling me, you're telling me you came taught, out of the womb yeah, with Mein Kampf in your hand. You came out of the womb with Mein Kampf in your hand, right? Right. No. Redeem Hitler for the West. <laughs> and the reason, part of the reason that I'm sort of sidelining Hitler in a way, and I, I agree Which with Taylor. That, that's important. I want to repeat that. You're not trying to amplify Hitler. You're trying to sideline him. That's really important. Yeah. Well, because I don't, because I don't, I believe in the antichrist, but yeah, I believe that he will sit in the temple of God calling himself God. Yes. I do not believe that yes. he will simply be kind of a, a national leader who, who consistently oversleeps and therefore makes decisions in sort of a sporadic way, which will cause his defeat on the Eastern front. Like I, I just, I just don't think about historical human figures outside of the church in those ways, because the Bible does not predict that they will right. actually be the ultimate evil. Right, right, right. You don't get religious about your history, which is right. what you got to do if you're going to listen to this Brief History Power 2 white guys. We're not quite over yet. I do want to say something about, um, I want to amplify off-limit yeah. thoughts, off-limit yeah. thoughts, and how 2020 hindsight has been largely realizing the freedom to have off-limits thoughts. And my first one, I've shared this on the show before, was when some pagan on Twitter said, reject modernism. Two words. I was just like, I can't. <laughs> like, <laughs> really? And, and so, I mean, just it, it, it spawned a lot of great um, stuff in my life, actually. Uh, and so more, more kinds of off-limits thoughts. So monarchy came right afterwards, and we've chatted about our views on that. So, yeah. um, uh, but, so that idea here again, the most valuable thing you can get out of this episode has nothing to do with Hitler whatsoever has to do with realizing that everything they told you is what they told you. And that to really think on your own, you're going to have to find out on your own. And that sometimes when you do that, you might find out that they were lying to you. Right. Um, and that when you find that out, that's when you really get to start learning. Because right. now right. you really get some discernment out of this thing, right? It's not right. just all good. Right. It's good and evil. And, right. and it changes the whole game entirely. So that's the off-limits thoughts. Who has the sword? Um... Yeah, so so who are the guys with the guns is what politics is really about. And so if you're going to take that to the ground right now, mm -hmm. yeah. so who are the guys with the guns? Well, it's been the PD, right? The PD is supposed to protect us. The point, again, I want to emphasize then is that who has the guns right now? Nobody does. Everybody yeah. does. They're all yeah. over the place. No one really is in charge of the guns. And someone's going to start shooting somewhere. It's going to be – so if whatever wars are coming first, they're not – they're turf wars, we got turf wars coming first. They're going to be local things. But that's where for you to ask politically, who has a sword in my area? I'm in the county. The sheriff has a sword. The sheriff still responds to calls. It does take 25 minutes. That's my world, right? In the city, the Rockford PD, they respond to some calls because there's a lot of calls, right? And a lot of people don't like them. They're, they're abusive, so they say. They're racist. So there's all that going on down there. Mm -hmm. That's a different locality, right? Who has the sword? That's your real personal politics, not who you voted for blue-red. Um, and I think that's just so imperative uh, as a wisdom thing. It doesn't mean go out and buy a gun. Um, maybe learn to learn how to talk better. You know, I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, well, I, that, I so. think that to think about politics in terms of the art of individual and collective self-assertion. Yeah, good is much more helpful than thinking, what am I waiting to be told is bad so I can go oppose it? And that, I mean, that happened to us in the, that happened to us in the, in the first world war and the second world war. I mean, in the second world war, you can find cartoons where, you know, Japanese people are basically uh, rodents and Germans are guerrillas, barbarians. And so they need to be exterminated. And so, you know, what would later come to be called genocidal rhetoric was not uh, by any means the uh, preserve of the National Socialist Party. But, you know, the reason you're not told that is so that it can be used again, mm -hmm. you know, so that and, and so that your understanding of politics is an understanding largely of what voice you're waiting to tell you to do what, rather than asserting yourself within whatever sphere is available to you for the good of the people that God has given you to care for. If you think about it that way, you know, you don't have to have metaphysical heroes and demons 
in history. I don't have to believe every single thing that, you know, Hitler ever did was incomprehensibly and irrationally evil, or that every single thing that Mother Teresa ever did was incomprehensibly and irrationally good. I don't, I just don't have to think about human beings that way. You don't have to believe any religion. Well, for you, that's not in the Bible. And that's really yeah. imperative. That's super imperative. Right. Yeah, because otherwise you're being asked to believe that, and you see this really explicitly currently in American politics, you're being asked to believe that uh, history and politics are metaphysical realms yeah. such that America has an original sin and then it has someone culpable for original sin, which is collectively white people who, who, who collectively also have no culture and aren't real, but are pretending collectively, I guess in a conspiracy fashion, to be supreme. So that that construction, I think, relies upon the similar metaphysical construction of Hitler, National Socialism, whatever other examples you want, whereby none of this makes any sense or has any historical basis or reality. It really just is a set of religious assertions. And regarding those religious assertions, I am a fervent atheist. <laughs> yes. Yes, amen. amen I'm, I'm, I'm on Reddit. I'm wearing the fedora when people make those kind of assertions. You know, are you telling me that you don't listen to the flying spaghetti monster when he tells you to put your mask on? Oh my goodness, right, exactly, right, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, it, you know, the bankruptcy, the, the moral bankruptcy, and I, I think we brought this up with Ron Paul because there were leftists that were willing to go along with Ron Paul back, back, back way back when. Right. The moral bankruptcy of the left can be measured by its simultaneous assertion that it's about freedom and being who you are, and also that you need to wear a mask everywhere you go to show your care and love for other people, and you're selfish if you don't and if you don't get vaccinated. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of incoherence. It's a very creative time because if you are at all, at all a thinking person and have or do identify as a leftist, you know you know nothing makes sense anymore. You know it's a mess. You know that your guys have nothing to work with. So I think that if we assert ourselves for the good of our you know, families, homes, we have a lot to gain because mm. no, we are living, currently living in a vacuum. You know, your options are pass, uh, pass bills in favor of transgenderism on the state level, or you're a Republican governor, so you veto bills that would outlaw the expansion of transgenderism. Those are the only political options available right now. So there's a lot of room, certainly on local and state levels, for something a lot better. Especially if you've got local and state problems that could be solved locally and stately with local state government. What do you think? Goodness gracious. Instead of having to just do the talking points from above and follow through on all the mandates because the religion says so. That's that's exactly where we stand to gain. And I, I mean, I, I'm not convinced that we need to really take back any of the actual politics depends on where you are but I, I my personal hunch on this thing is it's getting dark it's getting dark 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 so i'm going to put all my chips on those things that will outlast even my local city politics that doesn't mean i'm voting for local city politics to fall apart uh it just means that i'm not going to invest my energies in trying to prop up that system either i'm mm -hmm. going to prop up the system that i think is going to last you know what that one is it's called saint paul lutheran church it's in rockford illinois and you'd be welcome to join us anytime we're on the outskirts of town where we can set up a bastion of community love charity and true good humanity that kind of thing but so I say that as an advertisement, yes, but also because there is a collective that you can help. Yeah. That's what you got to figure out. Right. Which yeah. one is it? And keeping, keeping you isolated, but also religiously committed to their articulations of life yeah. is very, very important because if you got together with other people, you might actually have something you'd want to defend. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you'd form language. You'd understand that not all vaccines are vaccines. Some are inoculations, some are gene therapy. And suddenly you'd be like, I have questions because I've had these off-limits thoughts. And oh, look, oh, look, oh, look. So <laughs> That's right. it, what the viewer cannot see is how Dr. Koontz has literally endured like hours of suffering and trial to bring us this episode today. He has, he has all but barfed on the screen multiple times. It, it's not quite that bad, but uh, I want them to know, I mean, you really, you were a yeoman today going through this. And if they heard you like <laughs> hiccup or blip one or two times, um, I could see the bulge in the, in the eyes. <laughs> That's just all going on. And so thank you. I, um, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to die of COVID soon. I wish I had taken the vaccine. Oh, goodness gracious. So it's a, a stomach bug because, because just to clarify for the misinfo, COVID does not affect your stomach. There's 
you not puke from COVID, right? Um, and I, from what I understand, you don't even get a fever from it, which is interesting that they all take your fever at the restaurants in Illinois. Where are we going next? What's next time? We are going to work on Spain in the 30s. Mm. So we're going to go roughly chronologically um, in this series on collapses, but we're not going to stay in one place. So is this round we're two with Spain? To, what's up? Is this round two with Spain? Didn't we hit them once? We did, and we've mentioned them. I want to talk about both before the Spanish. I, I want to talk about the stuff before the Spanish Civil War. So we talked about military collapse. Right. But the dynamic that I want to talk about next time is the dynamic on a left where the left is in power, which is obviously the case nationally in the United States, but also you know way much more in, say, California or Massachusetts, where the left is in power, but then you have different wings of the left. And so one is still behaving bureaucratically and inside the rules. And another part like is willing to do violence. Mm -hmm. So I want to look at the dynamic and then we'll map that on to places like California, Oregon, Massachusetts, so that we can see what's happening. Yeah. Because I think that will be fruitful for understanding with Spain. We did see it fall apart. Okay. Well, what happened? How does that happen? Why could it happen? Will it happen? And if it does, what happens after that? You are listening to A Brief History with Power. Oh, goodness gracious. I thought before I said that, I'm just going to do this for the world here. Okay. I thought my anxiety is about to kick in, slow down, and you'll say it more clean. And then I didn't. You're listening to A Brief History of Power with two white guys. You know where to find us or we would not. We would not. You would not be here. 